When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. Betches Media presents. If you feel depressed and if you feel anxious and you feel confused, you know what? Welcome to the club. Gazpacho police. Oh my God. What a stupid son of a bitch. He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. The Betches Sup Podcast. Sayonara, sucker. Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Sammy Sage. And this is the Betches Up Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. And today, we're so thrilled to be here with Katie Tour. She's an MSNBC anchor and the author of two hugely successful books, most recently, the memoir, Rough Draft, that came out recently. And Sammy and I read it over the weekend, and I feel like we're besties. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I just went on such a journey with you. It was such a thrilling read. You know more about me than my husband does. <laughs> or at least more than he did until I forced him to read the book. Uh-huh. Good. I listened to the audio book version and it was incredible. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's really just wild how many, how much of like an extreme life you have lived. And <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll kind of get into this deeper, but I finished the book wondering, so you work in, you work in news, obviously, and you know, the 24-hour news cycle is its own beast. And your your parents were actually really a large part of creating that tone around the news, this very quick-moving, always-on feeling that we have. Do you feel that um, sort of like working in this industry that your parents and like particularly your dad created is its own sort of, you know, relationship that keeps you in it? It's my mom and my dad, full disclosure. Yeah. Um, they did it very much in tandem, just that my dad was, it was my dad's voice that you heard, although it was my mom's video mm-hmm. that you saw. Uh, one would not have been, I, I have to say, one would not have been possible without the other. My poor mother never gets the credit that she deserves <laughs> for her role in, in the business, and she did some amazing things. But yeah, I mean, I do feel like I'm living out sort of an extreme version of what they started. I mean, they covered, they were the ones that popularized the live police pursuit. So they were the first ones to get it on the air and get it to your TV screen in real time. This was in the middle of the day, the first one that aired, and it, it they broke into, the station broke into an episode of Matlock, a rerun of Matlock, to air this police pursuit, which was a carjacking and a murder and a red cabriolet with this guy taking the Los Angeles police on a, a wild ride through LA freeways and 
side streets and over mediums and blowing through stop signs and, and stoplights. And the next day they found out that it that it beat Matlock. It beat the ratings in Matlock. And the station was hooked and Los Angeles was mm-hmm. hooked. And in a lot of the ways, the country became hooked to reality TV as news and news as reality TV. I want to hear what's happening in in the moment. I don't need the context. Just show me all the action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in covering Donald Trump when I was doing that in 2015 and 2016, you know, we put those rallies on the air without context, live, just let him say whatever he wants. Like, let's let's watch it, watch it all together. Let's see how it unfolds. And it was done initially because he wasn't considered much of a real political candidate. And the rallies were so, so jarring and so weird. And, and you couldn't take your eyes off of it. It was like Howard Stern. If you love me, you listen. If you hate me, you listen mm-hmm. even more. Um, and then, but he became a real political candidate after that because the voters loved him, and we still aired those. And I, I think that addiction to in-the-moment coverage was was begun by my parents. So it was really mm-hmm. weird to try to come to terms with that as I was experiencing it myself in a way that changed the country forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you said, you began covering Donald Trump when he was a candidate for president. And um, which we'll get into. And it's clear you have a very unique perspective on him, um, given some like aspects of your your past, which we'll get into. But the first part of yesterday's testimony on MSNBC, I was watching you and you were anchoring it and you said it was one of the wildest things you had ever seen. And if you've read your first book and a lot of parts of you know the latter half of your second, we know you've seen a lot of wild things in general and, and specifically with Donald Trump, you've seen a lot from this man. So I'm curious to kind of start really broadly. How have these hearings kind of reflected your view of him and how have they maybe like changed your view of him if they have at all? So they haven't really, so here's the thing about Donald Trump. If you were paying any attention to him in the early stages of his campaign, you know who he is. You know who he is. And that was exactly the same person you saw in the White House. And that was exactly the same person you saw on January 6th. I write in my first book, in the very beginning of my first book, I can't imagine him ever letting go of the presidency. And I was half joking at the time, but I also really couldn't imagine him walking away or, or, or um, you know, giving it up and, and saying, yes, I did lose. He's not the kind of person to ever admit when he loses. So watching the hearings, it it feels weird to me because why didn't we all see this coming? I mean, this is the only logical conclusion to this presidency and to the man that we put into into that office. He's not somebody that can ever accept when he doesn't do the best you can possibly do. He, he is the best in his own mind. So when I'm watching it today, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking about all the people who enabled him to get to that point. And then I'm watching those depositions where they're under oath and I'm thinking, wow, you're saying all this when you're under oath and you said you were saying it all in private. Why didn't you say it to the American public if you saw it as just a threat? I'm shaking my head at all of the folks who said, just give him a little time. He'll come to terms with it eventually. What's the harm in letting him believe this for now? Because the harm was our democracy. It's a pretty big harm. And, and I'm, I'm wondering what happens next. You know, it's great to look back in the past and get it all down. I think it's important for history. But what happens in 2024 or 2022, which we're only a few months away from? 
Well, you said that you could have seen it coming. And I think that there were people who did see it coming. But I just don't think that those were the people whose opinions were taken most seriously. It was often women and people of color. I also think that there is a certain attunement to having a dominant figure over society like that. And something you noted was that you felt at home in your interview with him that you were sort of like used to receiving that type of dialogue. And it sort of just made me wonder if he inherently knew that he could pick on you, that you were someone who was accustomed to receiving a certain type of abuse. And so he kind of knew I'll pick her and... That's I don't know if you thought that I was I was yeah. someone who was accustomed to it. I think that, you know, initially when we had our it's a weird way of putting it, but the connection we had on the campaign trail, I was the first reporter that covered him seriously, first network news reporter, and he puts a lot of stock and value in network TV, especially NBC, because he was part of the family when he was doing The Apprentice. And so when he saw me as somebody that was assigned full time to his campaign, he saw it as as somebody finally taking him seriously. And so he was naturally going to be drawn to me. I think he also saw me as somebody that he thought he could charm. Look at her. I think I can charm her. I know, I know what she is. Maybe he thought I'd be someone like Access Hollywood, uh, Access Hollywood type reporter, which he had been used to. And when he couldn't do that, he went into overdrive. So he would alternate between bullying me to try to get his way or uh, trying to charm me to make me like him more and to give him more favorable coverage. So I was used to it because I grew up in this household with my dad, who was very bombastic and very um, charming and magnetic and could, you know, when you meet, when you met my dad for the first time, you would think that my dad was the most incredible person in the world, the most interesting, the most fun. I want to hang out with you constantly. Mm -hmm. But the longer you knew my dad, the more you, um, the more you were around and the more my dad felt comfortable with you, you'd start to see the dark side. So if you'd push back, then my dad would get angry and he'd want to, he'd want to, you know, bully you essentially into submission. And I, I grew up with that personality. And so when Donald Trump was there doing the same thing to me, it was very familiar. And I, I understood how to react in that scenario, which was just to stand your ground and don't give him an inch. Cause, because if you give him an inch, the cliche goes, they'll take a mile. Yeah, I was thinking throughout, you know, and and you talk about your relationship with your dad and your parents a lot throughout the book. And I know there I just kept thinking, like, I know there are way too women. This is kind of a personal question, but I know there are way too many women who sort of like need help finding the answer in their own lives. But how have you found the confidence in such a challenging career to overcome the insecurity that is often caused by growing up with an angry parent? Oh, my God, I haven't. I'm so insecure. (laughs) I'm so deeply insecure. I mean, listen, I have moments where I think that I'm I'm awesome and look at all that I've done and I've won this award and I've won that award and I've got this book and I've got this hot husband and like, I'm amazing. <laughs> Good. Um, she says it. <laughs> yeah. Those are moments and, and they are also, you know, they're sandwiched between other moments where I feel like a total hack and that I'm a big joke and that everybody thinks that I'm like not actually qualified for my job and that everything I say is stupid and my husband must need contacts. Why would he ever love me? And, you know, like all of these, all of these, these doubts that creep into your mind that are corrosive. I mean, I suffer from them. I think everybody, even if you grow up in a very supportive household, 
suffers from them. And I found that weirdly in my career, the the more successful I've become, the more insidious those thoughts have also become. Really? So the more the better I am, the worse I feel about myself. Oh gosh. Not all the time, but sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's a real I, I have to I really have to look in the mirror and and try to and try to wipe those thoughts out of my head and say say you're good enough, mm-hmm. you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. I mean I really have to do that to myself some days when I just I just don't feel good. I don't feel as as up to the task as I um, as I should. So something else that um just going back to Amanda's question about how you sort of get through those things when you have like a, you know sort of like that presence of the angry person. So I mean I'm a huge MSNBC watcher. I watch you all the time. And I love it because you are in the demo, my friend. Limited <laughs> age group. I'm like an MSNBC mom who's not a mom, and you like <laughs> like got all day yeah. just the soundtrack to your life. Ari Melber's got a wine glass for you. <laughs> yeah. Does he? Oh yes, oh, he I does. Need that? I need that. It's like my friends and I talk about you know the anchors like they're our friends. Like, are you watching right now? Like, this is what they're talking about. So for those of us who face like moment to moment challenges like this, when you're like on and you have something running through your head, whether it's a Twitter comment you read or someone said whatever, you're stressing over X, Y, Z thing. How are you then putting that face on and going and reading the prompter and just acting like it's fine? Because nothing that happens in your regular life matters. The only thing that matters is you and that camera and you not showing that anybody that might be behind that camera on the other side of it, that there's anything wrong. That was the one piece of advice that I got really early on in my career. I don't care what's going on in your regular life. You could, your, your house could be burning down. Your boyfriend could have just broken up with you. You can never let that come through when they're on the air. And I took it to heart. I also, there's something about sitting down in that seat and having the light go on that allows you to compartmentalize everything else. You just just push it aside and this is this is who I am in this moment. It it can be difficult if I stumble over some words, you know, I start to beat myself up. Or if I if I make a mistake in a question that I should have known. Like yesterday I said for Allie Alexander, I called a guy a she by accident because I just thought Allie girl. And I felt so stupid afterwards and I have to I have to get it out of my head and uh, and just try to keep going. But, you know, you just have to tell yourself that you can worry about it later. You know, I'll worry about it later. I will spin out on this in 45 minutes when I'm off the air. <laughs> yeah, you can make it 45 exactly, more minutes. Totally. Exactly. And, yeah. and usually by the time I get off the air, the thing that was bothering me so much in the moment doesn't feel as big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. 
Whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of the things I like to buy on Etsy have little dachshunds on them or are for dachshunds. Dottie's got a whole litany of new sweaters and harnesses and all kinds of fun stuff that we get lots of compliments on when we're out on walks. A gifting moment is always just around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. We all know your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. Sometimes what starts as a bad hair day quickly turns into a bad everything else day. I'd never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits healthier hair and skin. Yes, but beyond that too. Since I started using pros, I've noticed consistently healthy hair. Even with all I put it through with the heat tools and the hairsprays to get this pompadour sky high, it smells great, it looks fancy on the shelf, and I like that it has my name right on it. This formula is made for V. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. And Pros isn't just better for you. It's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corp, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription at pros.com slash feverdream. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash feverdream. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash feverdream. So the book, like we've said, is is really personal. And as you mentioned, it details your childhood with your parents who were really well-known reporters and helicopter journalists. They covered OJ and the LA riots and had a huge role, as Sammy said, in shaping breaking news. And you spent a lot of time discussing how this upbringing impacted you professionally, but your relationship with your father and how she took out her anger on the family is also very intensely detailed. I'm curious what you were the most nervous about putting out there because it's very personal. And you know, when I was Googling it, when it came out, a lot of Daily Mail headlines and page six headlines focusing on parts of it that were not the things I focused on. So again, in this sort of like, how did you psych yourself up for that? So I didn't read any of those. I uh, I went into a bunker. Um, I was nervous putting it out there. First of all, just for anybody who's wondering why you said she for my father, my dad transitioned to 2013. So when I talk about my dad in the past, like my childhood, I'll I'll use he because um, that's true to that reality. Um, and then she, every time I talk about her from 2013 on, um, so I was nervous for a lot of reasons. I, my childhood was a lot of fun and it was really exciting and I loved so much of it. And I love my father. I love my mother and my brother. And I, I wanted to tell their story, but I knew that to tell the full story, I had to be honest about it. And being honest about it meant that I have to get into some of the uglier stuff as well. And I didn't want to tarnish all of the adventure and the excitement and all of the truly incredible things that my parents did to change this country, to actually change journalism and change this country with the, you know, the ugly reality that there was also some abuse there. I also didn't, I was nervous about being, having this label of victim following me around. I I, I don't feel comfortable with it. So there's that. And then also my dad and I don't really talk now. Yeah. And that sucks. And I, I know that the book 
probably hurts for her. And I feel bad about that, but I also know that it's honest. Um, and I knew the only thing I could do in this moment was to be honest. So yeah, I, I, it, yeah. I'm still, it's still kind of hard. It's, I, yeah. it, it hasn't gone away. It's still, it still can be uncomfortable and, and difficult. Yeah. It's a very, very generous account on that, in that respect. Did the experience of, you described meeting your husband for the first time and like one of the first thing you said was, I hear you have a crazy father too. He said that to me. Or, oh, he yeah. said that to you, right. Yeah. I, and then you had, I think the next thing I'm trying, I, can, I have a visual memory. I can remember the page you wrote like that, that had taken away a lot of stress of like knowing that you would have to one day bring a partner home and explain all of this and they would witness things. And as a person who also has a crazy father, that fear of how am I ever going to be able to bring a person into what is going on here? Did meeting your husband change how, like your self, you know, the way you thought about your story and your family? Yes, because I don't. I'd always just tell a piece of my story. You know, I'd tell the fun, wild, crazy stuff. So I felt like I was never really my full, honest self with the people that I was dating. Um, I, I dated a, a, one guy for five years who was wonderful, also in the news business, great guy. His family was amazing. They literally lived behind a white picket fence. I mean, and they just were still married. Parents were still married. Everybody got along. Nobody threw anything at each other on Thanksgiving dinner. Like it was, <laughs> I loved them and I loved being a part of the family, but I also felt like I didn't really fit in. I felt like I wasn't being my true self with them because I couldn't tell them all of the craziness um, that I experienced, that they wouldn't understand it or that they'd judge me. And so when I met Tony and he said, I hear you have a crazy father too, it felt like, it just felt like this weight being lifted off my shoulders where I don't have to worry about hiding some things from you or shielding some things for you. You know, I don't even need to talk about it with you. I could just be me warts mm -hmm. and all with you because that's fine. You understand it. Um, and, and one of the really funny things about my husband is that a few years earlier, I think it was like a year and a half or two years before I met him, my mom called me on the phone when I was living in London. At the time I was dating a French guy and she said, I just met the man or I just heard the man you're going to marry. And I said, what are you talking about? You've literally never met my boyfriend. And she said, I was listening to NPR, <laughs> I was listening to Fresh Air and there was this interview with this guy whose dad was a drug dealer and I think he would be perfect for you. And I was just like, what are you talking about, mom? You've clearly lost your mind. He's a drug dealer. It was just marijuana, right? I mean. And, and I remember just, just kind of, you know, brushing her off and saying, okay, mom, I've got this French boyfriend, but thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. And a couple of years later, after I met Tony and, and I told her about him, she, I didn't, first, I didn't remember this conversation at all. And she said, oh, my God, that's the guy I told you to date. My mom, my mom found him on the radio before I yeah. met him. That's how perfect we were for each other. My mom had already picked him out. Does she remain very smug about that? <laughs> she does. She, she says mothers know best. And, and I yes, cannot argue course. with her because clearly they do because Tony is perfect for me. He and I have actually a great movie. I mean listeners Google him he's perfect for a lot of people no. <laughs> you said it first <laughs> not to make this about fashion but what was what went into the choice of the red wedding dress well I'm not a virgin or wasn't <laughs> well, a virgin um 
I don't know. I um, I I think I ultimately I didn't want to spend the money. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to spend that much money on a dress, and I. And then I just thought to myself, like, I I saw when I was younger, I saw this big red Vera Wang wedding, not wedding dress, but just big like gown in a magazine. And I thought, God, I want to wear that. That's what I want to wear. When would I ever wear that but for a wedding? I'll get married in that. Yeah, so this right. Was not That's a big true. Vera Wang wedding gown yeah. with like tulle and, and whatnot. But um, it was just a very slim burgundy wine colored wedding dress and i liked it it was lovely it matched the surroundings we got married in the desert it was gorgeous oh, yeah, it was perfect yeah thank you um, you i mean you also did it before that type of intimate wedding was trendy which covid one of the favors that covid did for us is that it allowed us the freedom to do a micro wedding to escape and just wear whatever you want well it was really intentional for us because we i I didn't want the stress of planning a wedding, but also I felt like we're, we're about to make a really big decision. We're going to tell each other that we're going to be with each other for the rest of our lives. That's a big thing. And that, if you read the book, like that wasn't an easy road necessarily. No. For you two to get to together. No, yeah. no, no, certainly not. And I want to make sure that that this decision that we're making we're all in on and it's all it's about us. I want to be present for it. I don't want to I don't want the distraction of, you know, somebody spilling their wine onto, oh gosh, yeah. onto the table or, or I don't like yeah. one sitting next to sitting next to here or the flower arrangements don't look perfect. I don't want any of that. I want this to be about you and me. We're going to be here and present for this moment and we're going to intentionally go on this journey together. And this is going to be the start point. So, I mean, that sounds very, you know, we might want to roll, roll your eyes at that. No, it's lovely. But I, I thought it was important that we that we experience it, just the two of us. And then we, you know, we had a lovely dinner with my mom and my step my stepdad. I call him my stepdad. He's my mom's boyfriend. And then we had a big party with our friends. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. As somebody who's getting married in three months, I wish I had just. I wish <laughs> I had just gone to a, gone to a mountaintop. <laughs> well, it's much easier. I will tell you. We all dread the what should we have for dinner question. I mean, I know I do. I love a home-cooked meal, but I don't always have the time, energy, or groceries to make it happen. Being able to feast on a delicious meal without the long prep and cook times is what drew me to Home Chef over the other guys. Home Chef's meals are effortless, so I can spend less time trying to be Top Chef and more time watching it. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week and serves a variety of dietary needs, so you never have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. For a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and of course, free shipping on your first box. Just go to homechef.com slash fever dream. That's homechef.com slash fever dream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard that right. Homechef.com slash fever dream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going. But there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. 
By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. You write a lot in the book um, about your transition to motherhood in a really interesting and candid and candid way. I mean, there's like an I mean, the word unhinged is in my head because of the hearing yesterday. But frankly, it was a little unhinged when you asked to cover what was it? The Mueller report five days with a five day unhinged, Katie. (laughs) Unhinged. It was that shit. You say it's unhinged, and I'm like, that's a problem I'm going to have. And that- <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we hear a lot about that transition. I'm curious if you had your daughter after, um, like, what, what was it like to become a mom of two? How did that impact your oh life? Oh, my God. Talk about unhinged. I was unhinged after <laughs> really? I, I had her. Um, she came in May of 2021. So uh, the pregnancy with her, so interestingly, the pregnancy with Teddy was amazing. I I felt Mm. sexy. I felt powerful. I thought I was like, what an incredible thing this is to have life growing within me. And I'm still doing my job. Women are amazing. And then I, (laughs) and then I gave birth and it was a horrible experience and really traumatic. And I thought, what have I done with Eloise? The pregnancy was miserable from day one. Oh, from gosh. day one. I hated every second of it. <laughs> the birth with her was much smoother. Okay. So I, um, I wanted to do a vaginal birth after a C-section because I had an emergency C-section the first time. And I tried for it, but it didn't work. So I ended up having a C-section with her as well. But it went much smoother because I was more prepared for it. I had a better surgeon. And then in the aftermath of that, having... So I had my son at home who's was two. Yeah, exactly two. Eloise was a newborn. I had my, my older son who had just turned 12, my older daughter who was nine, and then both grandparents and her babysitter. Oh my gosh. The house at the same time, <laughs> it was pure, pure chaos. I would probably want to go to the office too. <laughs> pure chaos. And at the time we lived in this, we lived in a loft and there were no, that was not that. That was not Teddy. That was Got Eloise. It. That was Teddy, not Eloise. <laughs> yeah. But it was just, it was wild. Having two kids is so difficult. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have coffee for an hour after I wake up because I'm I'm running a diner in the morning. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah, 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 I just have their shorthand orders. Yeah. How did you, like, get yourself to take the plunge into, mo- like, I know you wrote about how, like, you needed to time it, but, like, how did you get yourself to say, like, I know I want a baby and it's gotta, I just have to do do it. And like the career will be okay. Like, how did you just. So I I knew that I always wanted to have a kid. I I knew that was a non-negotiable for me. And so just for me, it was about when was it going to happen? And I got Mm -hmm. married. I'd finished my first book. I had this anchor job. I was definitely nervous about what was to come, but I, I knew that I was 35. It was, it felt to me now or never. You got to take the plunge. There's never, my husband likes to say, there's never a nice free 18 year window for you to have a kid. Like everyone, oh, it's always a bad time. It's never a good time. And so it was just about finding the right person more than anything else. 
and then the timing was secondary. We did time it out because I wanted to be back at work by the time the 2020 campaign cycle was in full swing. Um, and it worked out really well. We got very lucky. We got pregnant very quickly. Okay. So you're just like, you had a, you had like a deadline. Yeah. Right. No, but I wanted a kid. I, I very much, I wanted a baby. I was very into it. I, 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 I wanted, I mean, I was right. terrified, but I wanted, I really wanted to have a child. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great, I think it's really common now as, as some women not delay parenthood, but, ha- but have kids into their thirties. A lot of time that does coincide with like a career high or a really pivotal, pivotal moment. And you just have to sort of like, you know, learn to balance them together. It's interesting. Cause I don't think like the, the real strong desire for motherhood and also to be the person who wants to go back on air five days after they birthed like that doesn't often coexist like those two really strong desires but i was in a very in crazy mental state right. at the moment i mean <laughs> right that's you true consider, you have to consider what was going on in like, my career it was so i had covered donald trump since basically since he announced a couple days after yeah. and i'd cover every i'd covered every step of his journey all of the Mueller report i had covered the bar summary which i talk about in the book was a giant mistake to volunteer to do that work. You can read about it. Um, yeah. And then when the Mueller report came out, I felt like, how could I possibly be missing this? I can't miss this. This is this is the peak of, of everything that I have done for the past, I don't know, at that point, what was it, four years? Three years? And so in my, like, drugged up, <laughs> postpartum... Yeah hopped up on hormones, oh, I, I really thought that I could hold it together for an hour to go do my show. Like I was literally, it was a bandage on my stomach. I'm wearing a diaper. I'm like, I'm bleeding and I'm like oozing pus and I'm leaking from my boobs. But I still thought, I still thought that I could walk into this office, leave my son somewhere in this office with my mother. And then go upstairs and like wear some like, you know, pads on my boobs so I don't show anything and be coherent for an hour. Thank God they didn't let me because I think I would have been a total mess. I think you would have been maybe writing a book about that day. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> the happened. day it all ended by Katie Turner. Yeah. As you're describing it, doesn't sound that crazy, but <laughs> this is your second book. Of course, the first one was about covering Trump. The first one, if you wrote a third, do you have any idea what it would be about? <laughs> I, I thought it was a joke. No, I'm not writing a third. But I was joking with my husband that if we if we write another book or if I write another book, I want to write it with him. And I want it to be like a, a he said, she said about marriage where we just like we take one moment and I describe what that moment was. And then he describes it and we see our our conflicting views of, of marriage. Yeah, you could have guest couples like Jenny Thomas and Clara. Yeah. Um, that's probably not going to happen. I don't think it's, it's not a fully fleshed out idea, but I don't know. I think yeah. something in the future, if and when I write another book, I want it to be fun. I want mm-hmm. it to be just pure fun. Yeah. So if you yeah. have any ideas, let me know. <laughs> I mean, that one with your husband sounds, sounds perfect. So to sort of circle, to end with a few more questions about um, January 6th. You you talked in the book and you and you touched on this earlier about experiencing January 6th and wondering if the media had overlooked once again what this man was capable of. And I'm curious with that in mind, what has been your goal for the coverage of these hearings? Oh, a very clear one. I want to be as as precise as I can be about what we are seeing and what it means without going into hysteria. 
um, I think a lot of what we ended up doing, we in the media did during the Trump presidency was get hysterical about things. And, I, and I'm not trying to be provocative when I say that. I mean, we there were times where we gave too much weight to relatively small incidents like tweets. And, and to be fair, it was a crazy time and nobody really knew what, what was going on or how to do this because he was breaking all the norms. But because we were at 11 for everything, it meant that the really important stuff didn't necessarily punch through. So for these hearings, I'm anchoring them with Andrea Mitchell and Hallie Jackson sometimes because she's going in and out with the network. And our goal is to, to be factual, to give analysis, but not to get ahead of ourselves. Not to say that, not to have people on who will say that Donald Trump is definitely going to be indicted and they're going to lead him away in handcuffs. Not to have any guests who get ahead of their skis. Just, just responsible, accurate analysis and information from, I think, some of the best people in this business, both from the legal standpoint and from the reporting standpoint, um, on Capitol Hill or then in the, in the darker recesses of the internet, we've got a guy named Ben Collins who does some incredible work. And it's just to get it down on the record. And if it convinces some people out there that maybe Donald Trump um, did some terrible things and maybe I should pay attention, then that's, you know, that's what it will do. And if it doesn't convince anybody, then that's, you know, also what will happen. Not my responsibility to convince you. It's just to be as um, forthcoming as I can with, while still being fair. Mm-hmm. So just to close, how do you feel about the prospect of Trump running again? What are you dreading about the 2024 election? <laughs> what are you looking forward to? So, so I think he's going to run again. I, I, I don't see how he, and I've talked to people in his world who say that they don't, they don't see how he gives over the Republican Party to someone like Ron DeSantis, because that's a lot of power and Donald Trump likes that power. Um, do I think he'll be the nominee? I'm not so sure. I think that he has some competition out there, Ron DeSantis being somebody. The Republican Party, according to that New York Times polling, half of them want to see a new nominee. So I think the Republican infighting for the nomination in 2024 could be really interesting and explosive. And then I don't know what's going to happen in the general because I'm not sure, does Joe Biden run again? He says he's going to. Do Democrats want him to run? They say they don't want him to, if you're talking about voters, mm-hmm. the majority of those. So who is it? Gavin Newsom's yeah. name that's being floated around. I think it's going to be a really, really interesting cycle and uh, and also kind of a scary one because we don't know what's happening in these state legislatures uh, with people who are in charge of elections. There are a lot of candidates out there running who say that they would not have certified the will of yeah. the people. That's scary. And then Donald Trump is somebody who tried to overturn democracy. He tried to, I mean, he literally tried to break democracy to stay in power. And if he runs again, John Carl has said this, and I think he's right. He would be an anti-democracy candidate. How do you cover mm-hmm. that? I don't know. Do you think, and Sam and I have talked about this on the show a bit, um, do you think a potentially good platform could be a pro-democracy candidate to, to run? I think maybe. Yeah. I think maybe. I think that's, a, that's an interesting idea. We should try it. That is our, that's our, that's our ethos at this show. Yeah, yeah. I actually am pro-democracy. Please, please, finally. We've been, we've been like resting our laurels for too long. Lastly, I'm just really curious. I mean, if Liz Cheney doesn't win her primary, what do you think is next for her? Oh, I have no idea, but she is such an interesting, 
Oh, gosh. She's a fascinating person. I think it would be a shame to just see her turn up on a on some cable news network or some network just as a, a talking head. I think she's shown real courage of conviction and you might not agree with with her policy. Uh, she's um, she's certainly a very conservative Republican and, and has voted in line with all of uh, the Republican Party. And that might be your thing and that might not be your thing. Um, mm-hmm. But she's certainly shown that she's putting country over party. And I think that we should we should be so lucky to have more politicians who would be willing to do that? I don't know what she does. She Maybe she, she might take the president. pro-democracy idea. Yeah, as like an independent or something. I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, no, I can't really see that either. Perfect. Lastly, I'm curious if you if the January 6th hearings were a drinking game, what what word would you not want to have to drink during? What word do you think would would just be murderous? Oh gosh. Yesterday was definitely unhinged. Unhinged, definitely. <laughs> Um, Jamie Raskin would have making us take a dozen shots. Fight. I mean, fight is a word that you hear over and over again. Fight. You'd be, yeah, you'd be unprecedented. unprecedented. Yeah, never before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd like to do a control find on um, everything's published. I mean, that should be maybe maybe we should try that, Sammy. That'd be fun. Just control find the words that come up the most and then uh, and then have the next ones in prime crazy. time. So get your margaritas. Yeah. Crazy. Get your margaritas. I'm surprised you're not saying that it's pussy. Oh, oh no! <laughs> I gotta tell you, I cringed. I cringed when Rudy Giuliani said that. That was. Oh God! How could you not? How could you not? As a bunch of women, I mean, I've, I've given birth. That's not. That's not an accurate description of somebody not being tough. Okay. Oh, yeah. Somebody being tough. That's a tough thing. If you want to talk about things that are not tough, you can talk about male yeah. anatomy. Those precisely. things are not tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. And if you want to hear about uh, Katie Katie Turr's post-birth experience, you can read Rough Draft, <laughs> a memoir, which you can get anywhere. I recommend listening to it. You read it, and obviously you have your, you know, transcendent newscaster voice. I also obviously watch you every day on MSNBC. Thank you so much for joining us. We really look forward to your coverage and what comes next, and hopefully we'll chat again. Thank you, Sammy and Amanda. It was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Sammy Sage. And this is the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Sup Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Batches.